We're going to pick up uh, working our way through the Old Testament as we've been doing all summer. We're about 70 years after the death of Solomon, about 850, 860 or so. And what that means is that for about 70 years, the people of Israel have been divided. A nation once united has been divided and has been characterized mostly by failures of leadership and failures of the people. Uh, And so right now we have King Ahab who rules the ten northern tribes, the larger of the two pieces of Israel. And God in this period of time speaks through his prophets. Uh, Some would call them pre-classical prophets. We don't have what they wrote. We have stories about them, how God used them, what he said through them. And they often go directly to the king. They often go directly to the person in charge who sort of represents the nation and that person is King Ahab and God's messenger is Elijah. And so when we approach uh, especially the Old Testament, we want to ask, what does this teach us about God, about who he is and how he relates to us, how he relates to his people? And so one of the things that we're going to see, and in fact, the very first point this morning is is that, that God is not silent when it comes to our sin. He deals with it. He's not naive to it. He doesn't ignore it. Uh, He doesn't turn a blind eye. He's patient. Uh, He's kind, but his patience and kindness are designed, as Romans 2, 4 says, to lead us uh, to repentance. We're also going to see that God is attentive to his servant, Elijah. Elijah is sent with a very difficult message to give a king, right? Kings kill people. Elijah has to go tell the king, king, you're wrong. Uh, Elijah could die. God sends Elijah on a critical mission, and we're going to see that God sustains his servant. God sustains his work in the midst of a really a difficult calling. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Kings 16, sorry, 1 Kings 17, and we're going to start with just verse 1. It talks about this message that Elijah is going to give Ahab. And we've got a couple groups of people in Israel at this time. There's more than this, but at least these two. One is a group of people that are really not following the Lord at all. All. They know who he is, but they're not following him at all. And so if we want to relate their religious worldview to a plate of food, which is an important thing to do at 1130 on a Sunday morning when none of us are hungry, the Lord is a side dish on their plate, not the main course. He's an afterthought, not the main course. They know who he is, but they're not following him. Him, as evidenced by, for them and for those of us who might fit into this category, even this morning, even today, as evidenced by a lack of spiritual fruit, a lack of an increasing attentiveness and capacity to hear from the Lord and respond, such that there's an overflow of love for God and for others. And so that's one of the groups that's going to be represented in the people of Israel this morning. Another group is, is A bunch of Israelites that are really on the fence. They know who God is. They believe some things about him. They do some things he's said, but they mix that with what culture is doing. And so they really look more like culture than followers of Yahweh. We see these people sitting on the fence, trying to make a decision which way to go. And what happens is that really they're noncommittal in both directions and the message from Elijah is going to be clear and strong turn repent get off the fence because God is going to deal with our sin 
Let's read 1 Kings 17.1 as Elijah comes to King Ahab and delivers this message. 17.1, 1 Kings 17.1 says this. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So what God is going to do is God is going to withhold rain from them so that they will be drawn to the reality that they are guilty, that God is dealing with their sin, and that their worship of the false, fake God, Baal, is futile. They turn to Baal for protection. God is going to say, let's see how your God protects you when I pull back the rain. They worshiped Baal for provision. God's going to see, let's see how that goes when I stop the rain from coming down. Now, we live in Roseburg. Roseburg gets more rain than anywhere I've ever lived. And for a good majority of the year, I would prefer the Lord to draw back some of the rain from here in Roseburg. It's summer, so we know we need it. Most of us know we need it more than at other parts of the year. So this doesn't sound like a great threat unless there's a fire. We just got back from Nocatee. There's a a team here that was in Alaska the last two weeks supporting missionary Steve McCord and his ongoing work on the southern tip of Prince of Wales Island. And you know who really needs rainwater? People at Nocatee Bay. They don't have wells. They use tanks to gather water off their roof. And so if they have water coming out of a faucet, uh, out of a showerhead, out of a toilet, it's rainwater that they've gathered. If they have gardens, the only way their garden grows is if it rains and there's rainwater to water their garden or to be gathered that will water their garden. Many of them depend on hunting and on fishing to eat, not for sport, but to eat, to survive. If there's no rain and the vegetation doesn't do well, there's no animals in and around where they live, and they are toast. And so just the awareness of the significance and the need for water to live was visible in front of us. And so the Lord is going to draw back the rain to say, Israel, you're guilty. He's going to withhold his blessing to say, Israel, you're guilty, to draw their attention to show them the futility of their ways and then to, as Romans 2 forces, to lead them to repentance. Now, uh, Elijah gives this message, and as you might imagine, the king and his really wicked wife, he's maybe the most wicked king Israel ever had, and she might be worse than him. They don't like Elijah, so Elijah is going to flee. Let's read verses 17, 2 through 7. I want you just to see that the Lord is going to call Elijah to this great task, this deliverance of a message of judgment. Uh, And then God is going to be with Elijah. God knows what he's asking Elijah to do. God knows the trouble it will get him in, and God is not going to abandon him. Elijah chapter 17 Starting in verse 2, it says, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So depart and hide yourself could be translated, Get out now. Get out now. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. 
So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So before we get too weirded out about birds bringing food, because quite honestly, that doesn't sound all that desirable, I guess, unless you're starving in the desert. I don't want to... I don't want to fixate on how God meets his needs. I, I want to fixate on why. Um, imagine you're in Elijah's uh, shoes right now, and, and you're trying to be faithful to the Lord. You're trying to do what he's asked you to do and walk what is sometimes a lonely road and to do what is so often unnatural, very difficult, beyond ourselves, outside of our comfort zone, outside of our strength, outside of our sense of gifting, and now you're run out of town, afraid from your life, and the Lord is saying, you need to hide. Go over there, because you need to to get out of here. Uh, If you're Elijah, you might feel that this is a pause. You might feel that you just need to go into hiding and hibernate for the winter and then come back out to do what it is that God has called you to do. You might feel like for a moment God has abandoned you. You might feel that because things are difficult, God's not at work. You might feel because you are even in despair, God is not at work. And and so if you were to read the rest of this chapter uh, on your own, you would see three different really special occasions where God comes and attends to Elijah in a really special way as if to say, I am here with you every single day. And just because this feels insignificant, because this big picture thing is, is Elijah and Ahab and the nation of Israel and God calling them to judgment, God says, I'm here with you every single day and I'm not going to waste any second with you. And interestingly enough, this is where the passage is that records Elijah going to the widow's house and she's starving and her child is starving. Elijah says, give me something to eat. And she says, if I give you something to eat, then we don't eat and we die. Elijah says, it's going to be okay. Give me something to eat. And that's where God makes her oil and her flour never run out until the rain comes. And so we see that even in Elijah's difficulty, uh, in his despair, in his sense of confusion about what God might be doing or if God is going to continue to work on his behalf, in that moment when we're most inclined to look at ourselves and fixate on what we don't like and what we would change if we could, God still has a plan God still has a purpose. God has something for Elijah. So we're reminded in a very powerful way that that 24-7 attentiveness to the Lord is so vital. And when we're in seasons of difficulty, we want to just fast forward to the other end. We want to fast forward to the end zone. We want to fast forward to the next chapter. We want to fast forward to a new job. We want to fast forward to reconciliation. And God says, whoa, all of it is under my oversight. All of it is within my power. Don't miss today by looking forward to tomorrow. So that's Elijah. God is attentive to him. Three years go by. And so that's significant because 
we're all praying for things from the Lord. None of us wants to wait three years for anything. And if you've been praying for three years, and some of you for decades, long, much, much longer than three years, you've likely asked the question, God, do you see what's going on? Just want to make sure you see, because it's been a while and I haven't heard anything. I imagine Elijah's there. Some of you look around and you, you see wickedness. God, do you know what's going on? Do you care about what's going on? Maybe, God, can you do anything about what's going on? I imagine those are all things Elijah is asking at this point in time. And so after three years, God directs him to get a hold of the king and say, King Ahab, bring all of the prophets of Baal, meet me on top of the mountain, invite all of Israel, let's meet up there. There's going to be rain. Um, Let's pick up in chapter 18, verses 20 through 24. Uh, This is what happens on the mountain. King Ahab, all the prophets of Baal, and little Elijah, and the nation of Israel. This is a tidal wave of opposition and a Super Bowl-like crowd. Elijah versus the world. Chapter 18, verses 20 through 24 says this, So Ahab sent all the people of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Okay, Elijah has preacher in him. He doesn't miss an opportunity to stand up in front while he's got all of their interest and say, How long, people on the fence, how long people who have rejected God's rule, ignored his commands, turned your back on the one who has fought your battles, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. You've, you've probably been there before where someone said something and it cut to the core and you're silent. You have nothing to say. You know you're guilty. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given for themselves and cut in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. Verse 24, And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken, or we agree, or let it be so, or let's see how this goes. And so some of you know the story. They're all up there. The prophets of Baal begin to dance and to call out to Baal, begging him to respond with fire, begging him to intervene, begging him to show his power, begging him to represent himself. And there is radio silence. And of course, Elijah probably has a good sense of humor, doesn't miss the opportunity to kind of poke and prod and say, where is he? He's silent, he's quiet. Maybe he's in the restroom, maybe he's on vacation. Elijah has a little bit of fun with them. And then he says, okay, you've had your time, right? And Elijah steps forward and covers the altar with water, puts 12 stones, builds it out of 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, God's intention for his people as one, God's plans for them that they had disrupted, God's 
good uh, preparations, God's good path that he had prepared for them, that they were no longer following. Twelve stones on the altar. It's soaked in water to show an absolutely impossible ask of any man. And then fire comes down. Uh, Let's read what the people say uh, together. Verses 38 and 39 of chapter 18. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, it repeats itself, The Lord, He is God. Do you see that God does not tolerate this fence-riding stuff with his people. Um, Why is living on that fence so repulsive to the Lord? I think uh, one reason is we're called to be missionaries, right? We're called to a sphere of influence where we represent Christ to the world. And when you sit on the fence, you fail to represent Christ to the world. You look more like the world than like a follower of Christ. And that's not attractive to anyone. That's a deterrent to everyone. You know, uh, one of the things we did in Alaska, we got to go out and we got to just be on the ocean for a, a short part of a day and and it was beautiful, but some of us got sick out there. And I may have been one of those people. But someone else was sitting in the second row, nodding her head, wearing maroon. So just for the record, it wasn't only me. We were completely useless out on that boat. Absolutely useless. Uh, There could be pictures of... One or both of us sleeping in the cab, uh, not feeling well, somebody leaning over the edge. We were altogether useless to help what was going on in the boat. When we ride the fence, we're absolutely useless as part of God's mission. One of the things that we've seen throughout the Old Testament is we're either tools, we're either assets, or we're obstacles to his work. And when we ride the fence, we are an obstacle to his fence, to his work, and an obstacle to those who might see Christ in us. The Lord takes this fence riding stuff so seriously. Uh, if you turn with me to Revelation 3, we see two examples that I think are relevant to this population in Israel at the time, right? One group that is just obstinate, not following God. The other group that's sort of riding the fence. Um, listen to what John writes, inspired by the Lord, in Revelation 3, a letter to the church of Sardis that captures the essence of this first group of people who know who God is but are not following him. Revelation 3 says this, uh, starting in the second part of verse 1. I know your works. I have seen it all. I know what you do in public. I know what you do in private. I know what you think in your mind. I see it all. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. People think well of you. You show up at church. You look very nice. When you do that, you help out around things. You're a kind person in town. You do business honestly. You have a good reputation. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are 
dead wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. You see that the Lord deals with our sin and warns us accordingly. If we bump forward to verse 15, you see more of this fence riding with the church at Laodicea. Look at the strength in what John writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit for us to read this morning. I know your works, verse 15. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so we just have to consider what God's word says because so often we're inclined to filter our experience of life through our own discernment, our own rationale, our own culture, the people that we're surrounded by so that we can justify ourselves, justify our way of living, justify the sin that we tolerate, justify the comfort and the safety that we try to insulate ourselves with. And God says all of that fence riding is garbage. It's altogether useless to me like being sick on a beautiful boat in a beautiful place with all sorts of beautiful things happening around you. You miss it all. Fire comes down from heaven. People discover that Baal has absolutely no power whatsoever. God does. With their mouth, they confess Yahweh is God. He is the Lord. Implicit in that is Baal is not. And so you would think, after God has withheld goodness from them to get their attention, declare their guilt, show his power, and reveal the futility of their ways, you would think that they would get it now and that they would repent and follow him. doesn't happen. You'd think, in the way that God has shown his power in such a dramatic way in front of everyone, that they would get it and follow him. And unfortunately, that's not what we see happening and I think it's worth pausing and just asking ourselves today is it possible that in some way shape or form God is withholding something from us individually collectively to get our attention to show us something that needs to be addressed to show us that we're powerless without him by the way the way that we discover his power is by being overextended is by having our power, our sense of control, our sense of strength revealed to be futile in the same way that God withholds the rain to show the futility of worshiping this false god, Baal. Is it possible that he is withholding something from us individually or collectively in order to get our attention? If that's you, pay attention. Is it possible that in some way, shape, or form he is showing his power right now in your life, right now in our life collectively in order to get our attention. And again, according to Romans 2, 4, that his kindness to us would lead us to repentance. Elijah has this great moment, mountaintop moment. He comes down after 
the Lord burns up the altar. After all the prophets of Baal are killed, it starts to rain. He goes back down. Somehow he has an encounter with wicked Queen Jezebel. And she says, if I ever see you again, you're dead. And I'm going to come looking for you. If I ever see you again, you're dead, and I will be looking for you day and night without fail. I will not stop. And so Elijah goes out into the wilderness again. And we're going to see Elijah at his absolute lowest point, and we're going to see that God finishes the work that he starts. We're going to see that God finishes the works that he starts. Um, If you have your Bibles open still to 1 Kings, uh, turn with me to chapter 19. Elijah's devastated. Uh, Like so many of us, when things don't go our way, he's focused entirely on himself, which causes us to miss who God is, what God is doing, and how he's at work in our circumstances. God draws him in. God takes him to a mountaintop. Uh, He's standing there on the side, and it says the Lord uh, sends a wind and then a fire. And then an earthquake. And so Elijah is standing there before the Lord, terrified. And then it says the Lord speaks to him in a still, small voice. Verse 13 and 14 from chapter 19. It says, And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, and it said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Elijah, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You've got to know you're in trouble when you start pointing the finger at everyone else and saying, they've all done wrong, they've all abandoned you, but right here, God, but I have not. Elijah says, I have done what you've asked. Where have you been? I have done what you've asked. Nobody else has. And so verses 15 through 18, God is going to speak to Elijah. Uh, It's essentially the decommissioning of his servant with some last and final instructions. He's going to tell Elijah to anoint two future kings, and his successor, a man named Elisha. And then verse 18 is my favorite uh, because God is going to say, my plans are so much bigger than what you see. Elijah, I I know you're down. I know it's, it's difficult. And in your difficulty, you think I'm not at work. In your despair, I know you think I'm not at work. In this long delay that you've experienced, I know you think I'm not at work. But my plans are way bigger than what you see. Uh, Verse 18 of chapter 19, the Lord finishes his word to Elijah. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. He says, I've got 7,000 people just like you. I've got 7,000 people who are not worshiping Baal. I've got 7,000 people who bow to my name. Elijah, my plans are way bigger than what you can see. Uh, Some of us here are wrapped up in all sorts of difficulty, uh, all sorts of despair. And so for those of you that are there, I would just encourage you, uh, 
take, to take a step back. God is at work in your life and through your life. God is at work around you. If you need to be encouraged, get online and look what's happening globally in the church in other countries. Uh, if you need to be encouraged, go on a mission trip. Go to somewhere like Alaska where you discover that in this tiny little town of no more than 150 people, God has put a group of people who are praying weekly for that community to be transformed and follow Jesus. They're praying weekly for evil in that community to be pushed back by the Lord, who are serving in pastoral roles, in missionary roles, some with assistance from us, some without assistance from us. Uh, They're adopting children. They're building ministry to help those overcome uh, drug and alcohol addictions this is not a glamorous place. This is not an easy place to live. And God is at work. And one of the fascinating things that we saw is very unusual stories about how God brought each person to the island. And so as I just step back from that for a minute and look at how God has brought each of these families to the island who are partnering with Steve to accomplish God's work on that island, it's amazing that God is sending missionaries, again, some supported and some not, to this small place to be his agents of transformation. And Steve is not up there alone. He has got a fantastic team of people serving with him, praying with him, shepherding with him, caring for that community with him. And it's all the hand of God who has brought these people here. Some of them, they don't know how they got there. They're not sure why they're there. And when you step back, you see, oh, it's clear as day why you're here. You're a partner with Steve and this church and this ministry. And God has mobilized a team and called them to one of the most remote places I've ever been to. They're there with a smile on their face, serving the Lord. God's work is alive and well and going forward. It's a part of the world we'd never see, hear about, or read about otherwise. He is active. His plans are bigger than what we can see. The temptation is when it's difficult. The temptation is when we're despair. The temptation is when we experience some level of defeat to focus on ourselves and to want to quit. We see that God finishes the deal. He encourages his man. Then he gives his man a last assignment. Interestingly enough, uh, his last assignment involves anointing two kings. In Second uh, Kings 10, 30, and 31, we read about one of those kings, a guy by the name of Jehu. And Second Kings 10, 31, and 32 says that Jehu tore down some of the altars of Baal, but he did not walk with the Lord. In other words, he did some things that God asked him to do. He wasn't totally misguided, but it says he did not walk with the Lord. And verse 31 says that God begins to systematically dismantle these ten tribes because when God's people ignore his judgment and his correction, his judgment and his correction often become more severe. If eternity is what's at stake, then there is nothing that is too severe in this life for God to do to get our attention, to rescue us from such a tortured and terrible eternity. We know that ultimately the judgment gets even worse, right? In Revelation 20, we read about the final judgment where everyone whose name is not written in the book of life is sent to a place of eternal torment. Uh, And and so a passage like this of judgment shouldn't cause us to just go, good, I'm safe. It should cause our hearts to to break for those who are obstinate from the Lord. It should cause our 
hearts to break for those who are sitting on the fence. And if we're someone who's sitting on the fence right now, uh, maybe uh, you're a Jesus follower on Sunday, but you're all into your career Monday through Friday, and then you're all into your family on Saturday, and you you repeat the cycle. Kind of have that uh, smorgasbord of uh, worldview picking and choosing a a little bit of career, a little bit of family, a little bit of God, a little bit of fun, a little bit of camping, a little bit of hiking, a little bit of hunting, a little bit of fishing. Um, If he's more of a phone a friend kind of resource than a north star for your life, the call to you, the message of Elijah is to repent and to follow. If you're on the fence or if you're in that category like some of the people of Israel, just not following at all. They know who he is, but absolutely not devoted to the Lord. The message of Elijah is to repent and to follow, to not ignore the Lord's voice, to not ignore the Lord's correction. You know, it's interesting that uh, we would look down on a parent that never disciplined a child. We would say that's terrible parenting. We would look down on a teacher that never reigns in their classroom. We would say that's terrible teaching. We would look down on a boss or an employer that never gave any direction or corrective instruction uh, to employees. We would say that's bad for business. We would look down on a judge that never uh, punished evil. We would say that's bad for justice and bad for uh, civilization. Uh, Those who rule over us, we would expect them to do their jobs. We would expect them to Uh, have a corrective hand at times, but with the Lord, somehow we have this mindset with him that he should just affirm everything we do, uh, love everything we do, and just be happy that we talk to him sometimes, or happy that maybe we show up occasionally to church sometimes and and give him uh, worship with our mouth or uh, with our actions. Uh, And God just says to the church at Laodicea, you're neither hot nor cold, and I want to spit you out to the church at Sardis. Sure, you have a great reputation in the community, but I know that you're dead. He sees into our hearts. So if you're here this morning and the Lord sees into your heart and you need to repent and follow, uh, would you do that with the Lord this morning? If you're feeling that weight of that lukewarmness, would you confess that to the morning and repent uh, and follow? If you're like Elijah, trying to stay the course, and gosh, it has just been so difficult lately, would you look at the faithfulness of God that he has drawn to his weakened servant? He doesn't dismiss his weakened servant. And even in that difficulty, even in that three-year delay, God says, not a day is wasted. I have plans for you today. Uh, Don't fixate on tomorrow. I've got plans for you today in the midst of your difficulty, not once your difficulty has ended. Uh, In just a second, we're going to have the worship team come on up and we'll uh, finish our service together as we worship the Lord. Uh, The baskets will go by. There's a great spot for you to put prayer requests. Uh, If there's something the Lord has put on your heart, put that there and we'd love to get a hold of you uh, this week and be part of that. We'll have prayer team people up here on either side uh, of the stage. This journey with the Lord cannot be an individual sport. It has to be a team sport. We need each other. Allow the church to be that. Allow uh, the prayer team to be that. Allow someone near you uh, to be that, that we together would repent and follow. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would make me a quick learner, make us quick learners. Lord, that you wouldn't have to take everything away to get our attention.
Lord, that the first time you speak, we would listen and respond and not ignore your voice, not tolerate sin, not get comfortable up there on the fence where we pick and choose a little bit of spiritual things, a little bit of what you instruct us to do, a little bit of uh, what your word says, but Lord, that we would be devoted to all of it, that we would get off that fence and repent and follow, Lord, and discover just that sweet, sweet place of being in your will and in your presence. That place, Lord, where we hear from you and respond. That place where daily we're on a, on a mission, daily we're on an adventure as we discover the plans that you have for us and we participate as assets uh, for your work, not obstacles. Lord, we confess that too often we have been obstacles and so we would just ask you to take the things out of our hands that keep us ensnared with sin, with the world, with our priorities, with our hobbies, with our interests, things, Lord, that cause us to blend and look more like the world than like followers of Christ. Lord, you have good, good plans for us. May your kindness, may your patience lead us to repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.